Let us now turn in the Word of God for our instruction. We turn to the Epistle to the Hebrews and the third chapter. The Epistle to the Hebrews, the chapter 3. The Epistle to the Hebrews and the third chapter, reading that chapter and through to the chapter 4 and the verse 2. Hebrews chapter 3 through to chapter 4 and the verse 2. This is the word of Almighty God. Come, let us hear the word of the living God. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to truly receive his word. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God." And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, If ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, that they should not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years. Was it not with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, and to whom he sware that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise of being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, 
not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Amen. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and sacred word, and may the Lord be pleased to give us an understanding and apply it to our very needful and never-dying souls this evening. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. May the Lord grant that blessing that maketh the soul rich and addeth no sorrows. May the Lord bless his word to us this evening. Well, dear friends, I turn your prayerful attention once again to the words that I read to you when you were hearing there in the epistle to the Hebrews and the third chapter, the epistle to the Hebrews and the chapter 3. We arrive this evening in the verse 7 of the chapter 3, but let me read just to fit everything into context again from the verse 1 through down to the verse 7. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, But he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in, in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, and so on. Well, friends, we, I trust, have been blessed so far in our studies of the epistle to the Hebrews, and uh, it's such an encouraging passage of Scripture, as we considered last time. It's the same house, isn't it? that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is head over. Moses was a servant in the house. These are the spiritual seed of Abraham. It's the same house, God's people, the household of faith. But here, of course, they're having to leave the things that they could touch and see and feel, the things which Moses, remember, was commanded to build. Remember how the Lord called him up the mount again for another further 40 days and gave him instruction concerning the things of the tabernacle. And there he received detailed instruction and how faithful Moses was in communicating all that had to be done concerning the tabernacle and all those objects for worship, whether it was the altar, whether it was the basin of labor, whether it was the candlesticks, whether it was the showbread, all of those things spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that in all of our studies in the book of Exodus. And they are tremendous. But they're having to leave all those things behind. But all those things spoke of Christ. Christ, of course, is the builder of the house. It's a spiritual house. God's people are united together in Him. He is the head of the church, whose house ye are, 
if ye continue on in these things. All these things spoke in the Old Testament about Christ's sufferings. They were shadows of good things to come, pictures of the true, and that we are united. God will tabernacle with us forever. It's the end of the book of the Revelation. God will tabernacle with his people forever and forever. That's what the Old Testament tabernacle pictured. We were lost in Adam without any hope, but reconciled through the body of Jesus Christ. Now, these are most difficult times for these Hebrew Christians. The time now is AD 64, AD 65. The crucified, risen Lord Jesus Christ has risen up on high, their high priest, but they have nothing they can touch, nothing they can feel. But they have received the very best of things. They have received Christ. And the great Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, has shown in the chapter 1 and in the chapter 2 that Christ is better than anything in the whole wide world. He is the maker of the wide world. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He who is God became man. Why? So that he would, chapter 1 verse 2, purge our sins there upon the cross. He who made the worlds has purged our sins on the cross and is now Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. The Father has said, sit down, my son, sit down until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It's all prophesied there, isn't it, in the Psalm 2. Now the world is opposing these Hebrew Christians. Everything is being thrown at them. The world hates them because they are the Lord's, because they are the light in the Lord, and it will be true for us. If we are the Lord's, the world will hate us. The carnal mind is enmity with God. Romans 8, 7, it's neither subject to God, neither to his law, neither indeed can it be. And they have to be reminded of this. The world will hate them. But he has been reminding, as I've said, that Christ is better than anything that they could receive in this world. They have received the gift of God which is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Everything else, there's nothing to be compared to Christ. Nothing compares to him. He is the consolation of his people Israel. Remember as Simeon held the Savior in his arms. This is the consolation of Israel. Now thy servant can depart in peace. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that God would send his salvation into the world. Emmanuel, God with us. God who made the worlds. He is higher and more excellent than the angels. He has spoken in the chapter 1 and the chapter 2 about the angels. The angels who were there at the dispensation of the law, as we're reminded, aren't we, in the Psalm 68 and the verse 17, when Christ came down, he was there upon Mount Sinai with all the holy angels of heaven, And as Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 38, Stephen says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Stephen was preaching about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And he was telling the Jews of his day that this Christ who they crucified, 
and put to death was there. He was there at the giving of the law of God. And then Stephen says, to whom our fathers would not obey. And really that's what this chapter here is about, chapter 3. But thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we would not what is become of him. You remember that at Kadesh Barnea all those years ago? How they rebelled as we uh, read there in the day of temptation there. And they made a calf, we read also in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. What foolish people. Could a calf deliver them from the Red Sea, from Pharaoh, from all the enemies? No, they couldn't. But there were those that believed in those days. As we thought there in Deuteronomy 33, his saints who were in his hands. And they've always been in his hands. They sit down and they listen because they have faith. They have the gift of faith. And we're going to look at that this evening. And you notice here, as we thought last time, he calls these Hebrew Christians holy brethren. Holy brethren. They are not holy in and of themselves, but they're called to be a holy people. As Paul says to the Romans in Romans 1.7, Beloved of God. It's not true of the world, is it? But it's true of God's people. Beloved. You have been beloved from all eternity past. Beloved of God. Called to be holy. That's what we are. Called to be holy through the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, God has to provide for us a righteousness before we could ever get to heaven. And that's what he does through his dear son. With these people in the wilderness in these days, they were called to be a holy people. Remember there in Exodus 19, they were called to be. But they really didn't want to be. They didn't want to be. Now, these people here, Hebrews, here, chapter 3, holy brethren, they have been born again. They've been born by the Spirit. They have been given the gift of faith in God, and they are the spiritual seed of Abraham who Christ has taken on. Remember in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, he took not on him the nature of angels, or angels if you like, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He came into this world with one purpose, to call a people to eternity, to heaven, that they might be redeemed by his precious blood. He says that they are holy brethren, and they have received that heavenward call. Notice there, they're accepted in the beloved. Chapter 3, the verse 1, they are called heavenward. These are the ones that have been redeemed by the blood of his covenant. Zechariah 9 and the verse 11. He redeems them by his blood and by his righteousness. And he clothes them in that righteousness. It's imputed to them. It's given to them as a gift. And they are partakers there. Notice the verse 1 of the heavenly calling. They have received the gospel, remember. In these last days, chapter 1, the verse 1. God has spoken in these last days by his Son, Jesus Christ. They have received the gospel. They have laid hold of this gospel. They have this great salvation. And he tells them in the 
chapter 2, the verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. They're holding on tight to these truths. They're holding on tight to the gospel. They have believed. Now they need to keep on pressing on toward the kingdom. They must not let these things go, lest at any time these things should slip. And the proof of their calling, their holy calling, as we have thought, is imparted righteousness in the life. Of course, the believer has the imputed righteousness, but there is the seed of holiness in the heart now. There is the work of grace that has begun. He that has begun a good work in them will see it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. And they must pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12, the verse 14. It's all there. They must pursue. If they are partakers of this calling, they must pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. No man of God's people, of course. Looking diligently lest any man fail the grace of God. It's not that the grace of God fails, but that we actually are not in the grace of God. You've got to keep checking, making sure that, as Paul says to the Corinthians, whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, he says. Make sure, make sure that you are truly one who is called to be holy, that you have this heavenly calling that you have genuine saving faith. The Lord Jesus said, didn't he, you shall know them by their fruits. It's always true in the life. There's a divine calling. It's an effectual calling. He calls them. He says, I call my sheep and they follow me. Now, as I said last week, it's through the testing of faith, isn't it, that will prove whether the profession is real whether there is genuine faith. Sadly, today, so many stand up in a church and say, well, I want to be baptized. And then everybody thinks they're a Christian. Or, I want to be a church member. And then all of a sudden, everybody says, wonderful. God's done a work of conversion, but there's no proof, is there? Many people want to be baptized. Many people want to be church members. But that is not evidence, is it, of saving faith? It's not evidence of grace. Now, of course, it's not until we realize that we're nothings and we're nobodies and we see ourselves to be exactly that, that Christ will mean anything to us. It's not until we realize that we're absolutely undone that Christ will actually mean anything to us. You know, many people can plagiarize a testimony and read somebody else's testimony, or or just say the right things. But the proof is in the life, isn't it? The proof is in the life. Now, you can baptize people as many times as you like, but if they're not born again, they're still in the world, and Christ doesn't mean anything to them. Remember, as the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. That first part of John chapter 3 has to do with the sovereign work of God. The second part has to do with man's responsibility. And that's very interesting, isn't it? There needs to be, as we were speaking on the Lord's Day evening, real genuine repentance in the heart. 
It's the kind that God works in the heart. While God commands all men everywhere to repent, that's true. We know, we make a happy discovery that God actually works in the heart so that we do repent. And there is that repentance, as he says, that he gives to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews, and he also gives saving faith. These are gifts of God. And if we don't have these things, we'll be lost. We'll be lost. Again, it's all of grace. And it's only when we see Christ in all of his value until we see that we're nothing and that we're lost without him, we've got no hope. We've got no hope until we see we're hopeless. That's the place to bring everybody, to see that they're undone, that they're guilty. And we do pray that sinners will see exactly what they are. And it is our, indeed, place to preach the gospel and to declare these things, that man is undone apart from Christ. Now, as we think here, as we come to this passage once again, remember in the verses 1 to 6, Christ has been set forth as head over his house. Moses, who was faithful, was a servant, as we thought earlier in this chapter. Now, the structure of chapter 3 follows the same pattern. Remember, there is the exaltation of Christ, chapter 1, and into the chapter 2. But straightway, in the chapter 2, there is severe warning. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And the remainder of the chapter 3, he exalts Christ. And then there is application again. Now, Christ has been exalted over and above. He's not denigrated Moses, but he's exalted Christ. And shown how much more we ought to, if they ought to have listened to Moses, how much more should we listen to the Lord Jesus Christ? How much more should we take heed to him? So the same structure follows, the same pattern, exaltation and then a sober warning. And so we come again to warning, and then we're going to see application. So within the purview of this passage now, let's come in our mind's eye to see exactly how Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is going to address this, how he's going to bring application. Let's see, and of course this is being given to the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. Every word is carefully chosen. Let us see where Paul is coming from. He's exalted Christ in verses 1 to 6, above Moses, again not denigrating Moses, but showing how Christ, he is the owner of this house. The Father has given him this house. Here am I and all the children which thou hast given me. How much more shall we listen? Therefore, wherefore, verse 7, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And so when we come to these verses here, we think in the previous verses, he has spoken about Moses and the people, but they didn't obey him. But now God's people, if we really are the seed of Abraham, 
if we really are those of the promise, we mustn't be like them who paid mere lip service, because that's what they did. They made a covenant with the Lord. At the beginning there in Exodus 19, they were brought to Mount Sinai, and God said that he was going to make a covenant with them. But they didn't obey Moses, and they certainly didn't obey God. And God doesn't take these things like, like, uh, lightly. Just think before that, in all of God's kindness, what did he do? He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He delivered them from bondage. He delivered them from idolatry. He brought them from that worldly place. And yet they rebelled against God. They weren't content to be away from Egypt. Remember how the, the times they groaned and complained, we want to go back, we miss the food, we miss that. They wanted Egypt, and they wanted the world again. They didn't want God. And so when they arrived at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and the verse 5, we read, Now therefore, says the Lord, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. God declared it. I own everything. I'll look after you. I'll take care of you. Well, if you turn for a moment now to Exodus 24, you'll see there, remember how Moses, he, he took the book of the covenant and uh, he put blood in basins and he sprinkled the altar as well as he sprinkled the book of the covenant. Exodus 24, 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, now notice, this is what the people said, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now we also read in Hebrews that he also sprinkled the book. We read that later on. The book of the covenant. And it reminds us that it's a, it's a, it's a book of redemption, isn't it? This, these people were going to be redeemed. Well, these people, did they obey? No, they didn't obey. So 603,550 men perished in the wilderness over the next 38 years. Because they rebelled there at Kadesh Barnea when the Lord said, enter in. They didn't enter. They rebelled. Now why? That's the question we ask. Well, if you turn with me now to Hebrews 4.2, it tells us why. The Holy Spirit tells us why. Hebrews 4.2, for unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For, because we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. They shall enter, if, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So we're told there, they did not enter in because, verse 2, it was not what they heard was not mixed with faith. So they heard the truth. And 
The apostle here, by the Spirit, says they heard the gospel, just as you. The gospel was being preached, but they didn't have faith. Now, you'll notice that there are two different words used here in Hebrews 4, verses 2 and 3. Faith and believe, they are very similar, but they're not the same in the classical Greek. Let me just say, if it makes it simple, try and explain it this way. Believing is the result or the consequence of faith. By nature, we do not believe. We reject the truth. But faith, Colossians 2.12, is the operation of God. It's very important we understand these two words. They are sound very similar. And also in, in the classical Greek, belief is the word pistis, and the word faith is the word pistoial. And there are four things that we note about faith. In fact, there are many more, if you'd like to read Burkhoff's treatise on this or Calvin's work on it, they really do open it out quite well. But firstly, what we can say about faith is that we are told it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. We're saved by grace through faith, which is the gift of God. The second thing we can say, it is the operation of God, Colossians 2 and the verse 12. The third thing we can say, it is a supernatural gift of God, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. But also Hebrews 1.11, it's the evidence of things not seen. Now, you cannot see the work of the Holy Spirit, can you? But you can see the evidence of its work in somebody's life. As James says, faith without works is dead. It's not real. You can't see it. It's not tangible. Faith without works. But where there's real faith, it can be seen. And there's evidence. The Holy Spirit who gives faith, what does he do? He quickens the believer. Faith changes. When faith comes, what happens? Faith drives home the reality of God and all that God is and has said about himself. Now, natural man rejects God for what he says he is. And I'm going to show you from the Scriptures that this really, as we seek to open up, is the supernatural work of God that an unsaved man cannot experience. And the Scriptures are teaching us here it's all of grace throughout the Old Testament. We're reminded in Hebrews 11.1, that by faith we understand that the heavens were made by the Word of God. You see, by faith we understand... Here was the problem with the people in the Old Testament. They judged God by their own standards. That's what they did. What did they say when they murmured against God? You brought us out here to kill us. Do you remember? That's how they thought. By faith, we understand that God is good. What Satan began to do in the garden was to sow seeds of doubt into Eve and into Adam. And that's where everything started to go wrong. He started to corrupt their minds. That's what happened. Faith enables us to rise above a depraved mind and heart to believe God as we ought, because the carnal mind does not receive the things of God. 
Faith enables us to believe, as it were, as we should. You can use the word synonymously, but you see, faith enables us to believe. It's sometimes referred to as the hand. In other words, faith is the work of God in us so that we believe as we ought. Let me just read something to you from John Calvin in his Institutes, Volume 3, Chapter 2, Paragraph 7. He says this, Now we shall possess the right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us. You see what he's getting at? He's saying faith does not have an appalling view of God. It understands that God is good. Really, this is what he's saying. It understands God is good, but that's not how natural man thinks. See, natural man judges God by his own standards. That's how natural man thinks. He says, both revealed in our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, for faith includes not merely the knowledge that God is, but also, nay, chiefly, a perception of his will, his benevolent will, toward us. His goodwill toward us. It concerns us to know not only what he is in himself, but also in what character he is pleased to manifest himself to us. We now see, therefore, that faith is the knowledge of the divine will in regard to us. So it's just not knowing that God exists. I I don't think many people will deny that. But you see, people have a perverse view of God. And that's what faith does, is it helps us to see us who we are and who God really is. Faith helps us to believe. Faith is the gift. It's a change in the heart. That's why it's called in Colossians 2.12, the operation of God. And you see, this is why it's so important never to oversimplify these words. And this is why it's very important when we come to our studies, you know, we don't say these are the same words because they are different. The Scriptures say the devils believe and they tremble, but they don't have faith. They don't have faith. Now, if you turn to Deuteronomy 32 in the verse 20, we read, God says this, and the word used there is very striking, Deuteronomy 32 in the verse 20, for they are a froward generation, he's speaking about that lost generation, for they are a froward generation, and of course the word there, froward, is crooked or perverse, children in whom is no faith. There's no, there's no operation of God. They, they depraved, they lost, they dead in trespasses and sins. Moses says they are crooked. Now, this is something we understand. Faith cannot coexist. It cannot abide in somebody that is unregenerate. It can't. Because when faith comes, it changes. It changes everything. It can't abide in an unconverted soul. And that is the difference. The Hebrew word for the word faith is the word amen, and you can hear amen. There's somebody that totally is 
with who God is, who he says he is. He is the Amen who will do what he has said. Now here's the connection to all of this. The many people in the wilderness who did not have faith, Hebrews 4, 2, whilst they heard the message, they heard time and time again, they had perverse views of God. Let me show you. In Numbers 14, and think of it, they had no reason to think of God this way. What had God been to them all this while? Kind, gracious, loving, sincere. Had he ever lied to them? Never. The devil, and we must understand this, has distorted the human mind since the fall. But Numbers 14, 2. And the children of Israel murmured against Moses, this is at Kadesh Barnea, and against Aaron, and the whole congregation, and said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in the wilderness? Wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should be a prey? What ridiculous language! God is feeding them every day with manna from heaven. How could they say this? Has he not parted the Red Sea? This is why we are told, friends, here in Hebrews chapter 3, of the evil heart of unbelief. It is the the Greek word apistis. And whenever you have an A, it's definitely a negative. It's evil. And it is against God. Were it not better for us to return to Egypt... And they said to one another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. And they wanted to stone Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And that is why when you look here in Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. It's evil because you have perverse views of God. You have been given His Son, The very best. Will God leave you at the last? What an evil heart to think that God will leave you at the last. You remember how Satan, he tempted Eve with his subtlety. We're told how subtle he was. He said, surely God will not do this. Surely you won't die. He began to sow that evil. And she received it. And The exhortation is here, is don't forget. Because while we are redeemed, we still have remaining sin. Don't we? But what will, how will we be overcome? We will be kept, says Peter, by the power of God through faith to the end. Faith has a power. He's worked in our hearts and will be kept by the power of God, through faith, unto the end. Isn't that wonderful? If we have faith, faith will never leave us. This is why, if you notice, just turn with me to Hebrews 11, 6. This is why it says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Why? Because you, you and I have a heart that runs straight back to unbelief. We have perverse views. By nature, we have an art of unbelief. 
And so therefore, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Now, stop there for a minute. It's what you believe. It's not just believing that God is, but what you believe about God, that God is good. You know, many people believe in God. But we believe God is good, He's true, He won't lie, He'll never deceive us, and that He is a rewarder of them. Notice that diligently seek Him. He's not perverse. Don't ever judge God by your own heart. But He's good. He's so good. Now this is why, if you turn with me to Romans 8, 7, why the Apostle Paul, and I want you to notice here about pleasing Him, he says this, Romans 8, 7, for to be carnally minded is death. There's a person, he doesn't have faith. You might say he believes, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now notice this, because the carnal mind or the natural mind, what is it? It's enmity against God. It constantly thinks bad things about God. It's not subject, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Now notice carefully. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's the same there as in Hebrews 11.6. You can't please God. You see, so this supernatural thing is what changes us and enables us to believe. Now it's never wrong to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. That's true. But remember, it's faith that enables us to believe as we ought. I hope I've made sense. I know this can be very complex and difficult, but faith, as it were, is the hand that helps us to receive, because we just sink in our own nature without faith. We're weak. We need God. It's the grace of His Spirit. Now, what was the problem in Moses' day? Again, people judged God by their own depraved, wicked hearts. And that's man, isn't it? But God would never lie to them. Never. How good is he? Look, he's been so kind to them. He says, now you, you take a lesson there. God was good. Didn't he bring the people into the land? <laughs> Hasn't he given his son now? Hasn't everything been fulfilled? God is good. He'll never lie. This is why one of the themes that will come into here is that God He's sworn by himself, by his oath, by his covenant, by his blood, by his son. And if he's promised, he's true to his word. And he'll hold it. Now, you see, part of the problem is they didn't want to acknowledge the goodness of God. That's the heart of the unsaved man. And one of the reasons is people want their sin as well. They wanted to go back. But God is good. And he's promised grace, and he has promised glory to those who trust in him. How good God is. Now Christ, here's the application, is the son over this house. He who gave all the instruction to Moses, this is how you to build it. Eventually it's going to be destroyed, Moses. I'm going to raise it to the ground. I'm going to build it up. I'm the house whose house you are if you continue on to the end. If you have this faith, you have faith, God is good. How good is the God that we adore? He gave His Son. 
And if he gave his son, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He's good, isn't he? Never take your eyes off him. Fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus. You know, we will see that the epistle to the Hebrews speaks about the testament, or the testimony. The, the, the book of the covenant, the testimony was sprinkled with the blood. The mercy seat was sprinkled with the blood. Everything was sprinkled with the blood. But the testator of that covenant had to die. Hebrews nine seventeen. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon the first testament was dedicated without blood. The blood of the bulls and goats could not atone for our sin. But the testator of this will had to die. And that is Christ. He is now seated in the heavens. And he ever lives now for us. And he has secured our inheritance. We are heirs, as he says, of salvation with his own blood. Will he, will he deny us? He'll never deny us. He's true. And therefore we must listen to him. You have been given faith. There were those in the Old Testament who had faith that made it into the promised land. Few, but they were there. Thy saints are in thy hand. They have faith. And friends, faith enables us not only to believe as we do, or should do, but to live as we should do. Because when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, what's it going to say? By faith they did this, by faith they did that. It was by faith. It was all by God working in them. They were able to do these things. And this is why Peter says we're kept by the power of God through faith in him. It's not by our own strength of believing, isn't it? But it's faith that enables us to believe. And as John says, John, 1 John 5, 4, he says, For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory, he says. He that overcometh the world this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, the faith that God gives. But you know, friends, the faith has to be maintained, and that's the application of this lesson. Therefore, exhort one another. How do you exhort? By the word. By the word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing the word of God. And this is why we must exhort one another to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to encourage one another and to exhort one another in the word. Notice what he says in the verse uh, 12 there, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Therefore, you must exhort one another. You see that? Unbelief will creep in when we do not exalt one another. That, that is exactly what will happen. We've got to keep hearing the word of God, listening. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you a heart of unbelief. That's what happens, and we depart from the living God. But exhort, here's the application, one another. All the more, all the more notice there, 
Another daily, sorry, thinking of another verse. All daily, every day. How often do you exhort each other? Every day. Whenever you get an opportunity, exhort your brethren. The scriptures say, building one another up in our most holy faith. You hear the word of God. You hear it preached. We sing the word of God. We love the word. We pray the word of God. We should be Bibeline, like John Bunyan. It was coming out of him all the time. The Bible. Exhort one another. Daily. Every day. Every opportunity. Speak words of exhortation. They're words of Scripture, aren't they? Exhort one another in the truth. We exhort also by living those godly lives. What a bad example some people can be. You know, think of exhortation. The exhortation is not only to hear the Word of God, but to gather together, not forsaking. We are our brother's keeper, aren't we? We are to look out for one another. And uh, if people don't come along, it's right to say, brother, sister, we missed you this week. Where were you? We're keeping a loving, watching eye on you. And of course, it's for their good. Everybody is accountable to each other. But also think of it, if somebody else is a bad witness, think of the effect upon a whole church. It's terrible, isn't it? Somebody, you know, they live their whole lives, they're not church members, there's no commitment, nothing like that. What kind of an example is that to other people? Are you being your brother's keeper? You're, you're not showing any commitment to the body of Christ? You're not a help to anybody? Church membership is vital. It's a way in which we express, of course, our love to Christ, our commitment to the body of Christ, our commitment to one another, informal, enduring commitment to each other. Notice verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ. And if we're made partakers of Christ, we're made partakers of his body, his church. He, he brings us together. You need to encourage each other. Stir one another up in your most holy faith. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Of course, our confidence is in the head, isn't it? Christ, not the body. Some people take confidence in the body. There's no, we have no confidence in the body, no confidence in the flesh, in each other, but it's Christ. And, and we need to keep hearing him, what he's done for us. Stir up our hearts in these truths. This is it, isn't it? If he has quickened you and he's done this work in you, he loves you. Where there's faith, there's love, beloved of God. He loves you. He'll never let you go. But you need to exhort one another. If you love the brethren, you need to encourage them. You need to kindly admonish one another. You need to do good, especially to the household of faith. You need to be a witness. Notice, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice. We don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be around. This is why he says, today. But exhort one another daily. You just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow.
always thankful when I get a little encouragement by text or by email or something from somebody. A little verse here, a little encouragement, somebody praying for you. What an encouragement that is. Do we not need to remind ourselves of all that Christ has done for us? And do we need not need to be reminded that we are have received that heavenly calling, that we must not deny him, and that he can be trusted. We need to tell each other he can be trusted. We we have confidence in him. There's our confidence. There's our hope. The captain of our salvation has gone before. He's done it for us. But we have to be faithful to the end. We have to hold on. Never let these things slip. Don't harden your heart. Like these people, they had hard and insincere thoughts about God. Remember what I was saying? God's just brought us here to kill us. Maybe some of these people were thinking, what's God done to us? The Lord Jesus has gone to glory now. Look, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed very soon. Does he love it? Yes, he loves us. And he's coming again. Encourage each other. You know, many in the wilderness didn't care about each other. Think of it. Just thinking about their own stomachs. Let's get back and have some of that Egyptian food. Never mind the promises of God. Promised a land flowing with milk and honey. Promised our own land. Given us freedom. Given us everything. All they were interested in were their personal tastes and their feelings. They put themselves first. And there are a lot of Christians like that. They put themselves first. My personal tastes come before the church. Come before the body of Christ. But that's not so with God's people. We are our brother's keeper. And we are to exhort one another. But there's so much more we can consider here and we will, God willing, next time as we open up this passage. But I did want to show the difference between this faith and belief. Again, faith enables us to truly see God for who He is so that we do believe, so that we believe to the end. You see? Faith changes us, helps us to see us who we are, He who He is impossible to please God without faith. He gives us eyes to see. Remember what he said to Peter, blessed are your eyes, Peter, for they see. Your ears, for they hear. The others, they don't see. They don't see who I am. They don't see these works. They don't want to see it. You know, they don't want to see it. They want to see what they want to see. But we have been given eyes to see that he is the very best of gifts. God has given us his son. Oh, and therefore let us fear. Chapter 4. What sort of fear is it? Well, he tells us in Hebrews 12, 28, godly fear. That's what it is, godly fear. Let us have reverence and godly fear. Remember what the psalmist says, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. We have a real reverence for him now. 
because we've been forgiven. You see, some of the people in the days of Moses weren't very thankful for the deliverance they had. They thought they deserved better, didn't they? But how thankful some of them were. We have been delivered by the blood of the Lamb out of bondage. And Abraham, he wasn't looking for Jerusalem. But it says that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And that's us, isn't it? He will give us all things. We are Christ's spiritual house indeed, if we have faith. May the Lord help us as we press on by faith.